Well, it is wonderful to be back with you, and uh, if you have your Bible with you, uh, or if you can access one of the pew Bibles in the seat in front of you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 9, verse 26. That's on page 918 in the pew Bibles, Acts 9, 26. This morning, we are looking at the hidden years in the life of the Apostle Paul. This is the part of his story that we tend to know the least about. Uh, as Christians, of course, uh, we've all heard sermons, uh, probably multiple sermons, on the tremendous Damascus Road conversion of the Apostle Paul. That's a, a glorious story. And then, of course, if you've been in the church for any length of time, then you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's missionary travels and his many letters. But what about the years between? When I say hidden years of the Apostle Paul, I don't mean that there's nothing uh, that we can know about those times. I just mean, if you've read the, the book of Acts, you've noticed yourself that the Apostle Paul disappears from the Acts timeline uh, in the sort of the middle of Acts chapter 9, and then he doesn't reappear in the Acts timeline until the end of chapter 11. What you may not know is that that gap actually represents the better part of a decade. And, and we know a little bit about what was going on during that decade because of biographical references that the Apostle Paul makes in his letters. But as I said, we're less familiar with that because in order to put that together, you've got to take all these biographical snippets and kind of line them up so that you can create your own kind of timeline. But it's worth the effort of doing that because it reveals a very interesting story. The Apostle Paul, uh, as, as you know, if you've been tracking in Acts, got off to just a marvelous start in his ministry. He was preaching the gospel. He was confounding the authorities. He was causing an uproar. And then all of a sudden, contrary to everything we would expect, the Lord sent him away into utter obscurity for the better part of a decade. Why in the world would he do that? That's what we're looking at today. By studying these, these hidden years, we begin to learn a little something about how God works, how he shapes and molds the character of his people. And we get an, an illustration, as it were, of the careful, slow, and quiet providence of God in the lives of his people. So here now the word of the Lord will begin at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So... The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In essence, this morning, we're preaching on that little bit that we just read, plus the gap that exists between that little bit and Acts 11.25. So if you have your Bible with you, you've got a paper Bible, just flip probably to the right, maybe two pages. And you can look at that, Acts 11.25. Interesting story there as you find that. The church in Antioch had started to really grow and, and expand. And uh, we'll get to that story in just a few weeks. 
But it was a unique church, and what was unique about it was for the first time, there were Jews and Gentiles worshiping and serving side by side in the same church. And uh, so the leaders in Jerusalem were curious, like, how's that going? What's that all about? How's that look? And what needs to be done there to manage that? And so they sent Barnabas, who, of course, is a very trusted delegate. They sent Barnabas to check it out and to help however he could do. And when Barnabas got there and he understood what God was doing, verse 25 says, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So that's a pivotal moment in the story of the church. As I mentioned, for the first time ever, we've got Jews and Gentiles worshiping and serving alongside of one another. And that would take a special kind of leader, wouldn't it? It would take somebody who was intimately acquainted with the Old Testament, but also somebody who was at home in the Roman world. And I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, it, it may be confusing to you as if you're a first-time Bible reader, you're working your way through Acts, and at the start of the story, we're talking about Saul, and then all of a sudden, without any warning or explanation, he's going by Paul. Uh, that, he, he did not change his name when he got converted. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say that. That is 100% not true. He's, he's still Saul in this story, a decade after he was converted, right? The change actually happens when he enters Gentile territory on mission. Um, most Jews who were diaspora Jews, meaning Jews who lived uh, outside of Jerusalem, had a, a name they used basically in Gentile company, in, in commerce out in the world, and then they had a Jewish home name that would have been sort of the, the language of the home. That's what their mama would have called them. Uh, that's what they would go by in the synagogue. But out in the marketplace, out in the world, they had another name. So as Paul crosses sort of the, the line and enters into Gentile territory, he starts going by the name Paul. But it's the same guy, Saul Paul. And he was the the perfect man for the job in this situation. He had spent time studying Greek culture. He was, he was a Roman citizen, but he was also deeply studied in the Jewish scriptures. And so he was, he was the perfect leader for that, for that moment, this pivotal moment. This was such a pivotal moment in the history of the church. They actually had to come up with a new name for followers of Jesus. Did, did, you, did you catch that bit? It's, it's a sort of a tag on at the end. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Why is that? Because up until this point, they had just been called Jews who love Jesus. But now, for the first time, like half the church is not even Jewish. So they're not just Jews who love Jesus. They're not just Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Who are these people? What are we going to call them? Let's call them Christians. Little Christs is basically a rough translation. Little Christs, Jew and Gentile, little Christ. Who's going to lead these folks? The leader for that moment was the Apostle Paul. But here's the question. Why did Barnabas have to go looking for Saul in the first place? Why had God sent him into Tarsus for almost a decade? I think the first part of the answer has got to be this, because leadership is about more than passion, boldness, and charisma. Paul had those things already back in Acts chapter 9. He had those things in spades. He was passionate. He was bold. He was gifted. He had it all. Look at Acts 9, 28 to 29. Luke says, so he, Paul, Saul, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. He could go, he could do either, right? He, could, he was fluent in Hebrew. He was fluent in Greek. He was just, he was perfect. But they were seeking 
to kill him. See that Paul was a rock star in every conceivable way. He was incredibly well educated. Uh, he he studied under Gamaliel. Scholars refer to that as Hebrew Harvard. Uh, in those days, you didn't have institutions; you had rabbis. And Gamaliel was the most famous rabbi in the land. And Paul says it's it's in the Bible. Paul studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel continues to be quoted to this day. He's an incredibly uh, famous character in in history. Paul studied at his feet. He went to Hebrew Harvard. Incredibly well-educated guy. He was incredibly bold. He was a man on the rise. He was an up-and-comer. He tells us that in Galatians chapter 1, but we could have figured that out for ourselves in Acts chapter 7, because in Acts chapter 7, he appears as a junior clerk of the Jewish Senate in the story of Stephen's martyrdom. Well, they don't give out junior clerkships to C-plus students, do they? Uh, Paul was one of the stars, and now he was on our team. So this would be like if Richard Dawkins converted to Christianity today. Can you imagine that? If Richard, Richard Dawkins, for those of you who don't know who that is, sometimes referred to as one of the you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Not, not really, no. He's, he's, um, that's an overstatement. Uh, he's, he's one of the, the new atheists uh, you know, chances are if you, if you hear or see kids on the internet um, saying funny things about Christianity and, and making sort of gotcha comments, it, they probably got those from Richard Dawkins. Uh, he, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. He, he is the most prominent and probably aggressive spokesperson against Christianity today. Can you imagine if he converted to faith in Christ? Should be praying for that. Can you imagine if he did? Boy, can I tell you something? If Richard Dawkins converted to, to Christianity, within a week, we would have him on all the biggest stages in Christendom, wouldn't we? He'd be given the keynote address at T4G. He'd be given the commencement speech at Liberty University. You know that's exactly how it would go down. But that's not how it did go down. God sent this superstar into obscurity because leadership is about more than passion, boldness, and charisma. Paul needed to learn to walk with a limp. And church history tells us that after his time in Tarsus, he did, both literally and metaphorically. We don't know all the the details of what happened to Paul in Tarsus. We know bits and pieces because Paul would refer to his time in these little biographical snippets. He says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Historian John Pollock says here, writing in AD 56, he, Paul, mentions being punished no less than five times by the Jewish 40 stripes save one. Yet none of this is recorded in Acts. Thus it is probable that he was whipped more than once in the hidden years at Tarsus. Scourging was regarded as the correction of a brother, purging his offense that he might resume a place in the family of the synagogue. Are you hearing that? So this is how it worked in the first century Jewish synagogue. Uh, Paul would have had the right to stand up every time the Old Testament scriptures were read. As As a highly educated Jew, he would almost certainly have been the most educated Torah scholar in his home region. And so every in a Jewish synagogue service, there'd be multiple scripture readings and then those who were qualified could, could stand up and give a brief sermon. There were, in, a, in a Jewish synagogue service in the first century, there were probably two or three sermons. 
And Paul would, he would stand up and give one of those. And there were, a, there were elders who basically oversaw. And, and if Paul stepped outside of the boundaries of orthodoxy, he'd be warned. And then if he did it again, he'd be whipped. And Paul says that happened to him five times. Now, the scourging was for a brother, meaning if you endured it, if you went all the way to the end with it, if you endured it, then you were readmitted, having been chastised. Which means Paul was so committed to the gospel. Can you imagine, after getting scourged the first time, people died under scourging. Can you imagine after that, Paul shows up again the next Sabbath, and he sits down, and the elders are looking at him and going, oh, are you serious? He's back. And they're like doing the readings, and it's like Isaiah 53 this week, and they're like, oh, come on! There's no way he's not getting up, and he gets up, and he does it again. And they go through the whole process five times. He was that committed to preaching the gospel to his hometown, to his, to his family, to his relatives. This was no joke. As I said, people died under scourging. If you were, if you were the lictor, the person administering the, the scourge, it was a skill. If the person lost control of their bowels or died during the process, you were, you were disciplined, you were fined. Meaning you wanted, to get them to the, you wanted them to experience the most possible pain without dying or without losing control of their bowels in the process. John Pollock describes first century synagogue discipline. He, he describes what it would have looked like for the Apostle Paul. Watched by the congregation, he was bent and bound between two pillars. The Hazan, possibly the same who had taught him as a boy, solemnly tore at his robe until his torso was bare. The Hazan picked up a heavy whip formed by a four-pronged strap of calf hide with two prongs of ass hide long enough to reach the navel from behind and above. He stood on a stone and with one hand using all his might, he brought it down over Paul's shoulder to curl around and cut his chest. Thirteen lashes were counted while a reader intoned curses from the law. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. After the 13th on the chest, the whipping was transferred to the back, 13 hard strokes across one shoulder, 13 across the other, cutting across wheels already bleeding. The synagogue elder in charge could stop the punishment if the prisoner collapsed or lost control of his bowels, but such mercy can have been exercised seldom, for the scourger was expressly indemnified if the victim died. Paul endured to the end, tasting not only the agony he had inflicted on others, but the sharing of his pain with Jesus. See, it wasn't enough for the Apostle Paul to be brilliant. It wasn't enough for him to know the Bible better than everybody else. It wasn't enough for him to have the boldness of a lion. He needed to learn empathy. He needed to learn humility. He needed to experience suffering. Think about that. We, we remember that in the first scene with the Apostle Paul in it, he's actually the one recruiting, not recruiting, but, but taking people, arresting people so that they would experience this punishment. I think there's something very interesting about some insights into psychology here. It wasn't enough for the Apostle Paul to be forgiven and restored. There was a sense in which in order for him to have credibility as a leader, he would also need to have empathy. 
It would be difficult for the Apostle Paul to stand up and preach in a church, look out and see people that he had ordained and orchestrated their punishment without ever having tasted that medicine himself. Paul needed to understand. He needed to be humbled. He needed suffering. There are certain things that you can't learn from a book as a leader. There are certain things you have to learn in the school of affliction. David knew about that. He said in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, did David not own a copy of the Torah? Of course he did. Deuteronomy 17 says that David actually had to write out by hand his own copy of the Torah. So he knew, he had read it, he knew it. Even still, there were certain things he had to learn in the school of affliction. The Apostle Paul had to be enrolled in that same program because that is part of how God prepares people to exercise leadership in the kingdom of God. Then secondly, it would seem from our reading of Acts 9 that God sent Paul to Tarsus because there's a time for war and a time for peace. The Bible says that in Ecclesiastes 3. The wise preacher says there's a time for everything. He says a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. A lot of wisdom has to do with just knowing what time it is. A lot of leadership has to do with understanding pace, understanding where you are in the process. Wisdom is about understanding that there's, there's not the same tasks, there's not the same approach required at each stage of a project. You know, we think of how we launch rockets into space. There's a certain type of fuel that gets the rocket off the ground, and then there's another type of fuel that helps them once they're out of the Earth's orbit. Wisdom involves understanding that. Some leaders are right for one stage of the process, but not right for the next stage of the process. The Apostle Paul is a case in point. Paul came out of the gate like a man on fire. He was a man of war. He was a war machine. He knew the Bible better than anybody else. He had a story like nobody else. He had charisma like nobody else. And he was operating more or less independently at the start of the story. Paul makes that clear himself. He was not a derivative apostle. He did not learn the gospel sitting at someone else's feet. He says that he learned it sitting at Jesus' feet. He learned it by revelation. He tells us that himself in Galatians 1. He says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and remained with him 15 days. So if you're looking at your Bible, all of that content that we just mentioned, all of that biographical information that the Apostle Paul just supplied there could fit in as a footnote between Acts 9.22 and Acts 9.23. Look at your Bibles. We forget that histories skip over stuff. Histories, they give you the big events. They give you the big turning points. There's a lot going on between verse 22 and verse 23. Paul says he was in Damascus. Then he went out to the desert. Then he came back to Damascus. Then he went down to Jerusalem, which is where Luke picks up the story in Acts 9.26, which raises the question, what in the world happened to the apostle Paul in the desert? Now, we don't know as much about that as we would like to know. Paul tells us that, again, he was learning directly from God. He did not get his gospel from anybody. He didn't go to 
hang out with Peter and learn it there. He didn't hang out with Andrew and learn it there. He didn't hang out with John and learn it there. He says it came to him directly. Ephesians 3, 2 to 3, he says, You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul keeps referring to this fact that he received the gospel directly by revelation, not secondhand. So when did that happen? Well, we don't know. But again, we can piece it together through hints that we get in his letters. After his decade in Tarsus, he would look back a time before that decade and say this in 2 Corinthians 12 two, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Now, you remember that, right? Paul says, I know this guy. And he's, he's speaking carefully. He says, I know this guy. And I want to say too much, but I'm just telling you, he had the most incredible visions you could ever possibly imagine. He was directly in the presence of God. And then a couple verses later, this is the same chapter, 12, 7, to keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And so the Apostle Paul was clearly talking about himself. If he had a friend named Bob who had those revelations, then Bob would get the thorn in the flesh. But Paul says to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of my spiritual experiences. A physical weakness was ordained for me. So Paul had incredible experiences. I share all that simply to say he was brilliant. He had a great story. He had an incredible encounter. He had a once-in-a-generation mind. In other words, he was a walking, talking, breathing confrontation with the Jewish authorities. There was no way for him not to go off like a bomb in Jerusalem. And it was not the right time for that. So God diffused the situation. Leadership is about pace. Leadership is about knowing where you are in the process. Providence is about timing. And so God sent Paul, enrolled Paul in a 10-year postgraduate program in the School of Affliction. And in that season of lowered tensions, the church grew. That's... That's not a leap. That's the last line in the story. Look, look at it again. Acts 9.31. So, that's a connector, meaning because of this, because God sent Paul away, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see that? It was because this electric character was sidelined or backburnered for the better part of a decade that the church had the time it needed to consolidate and grow. Here's something we need to understand. The church was not designed for constant warfare. The church is a body, not a machine, and bodies need time to rest and recuperate. When I was in high school, I, uh, I read the book, All Quiet on the Western Front. Is that, I don't know if that's still a thing. Put up your hand quickly if you've read the book, All Quiet on the Western Front. Three of us, great. <laughs> anyway, put up your hand if you've seen the movie that's out on Netflix. Maybe that's a little easier. Yeah, there you go. I haven't seen the movie, so if it's bad, don't blame me. Um, but I had to read the book, All Quiet on the Western Front, when I was in high school. And then later, as an adult, I read it again. And one of the things that struck me both times I read it, is actually how little time Paul Baumer and his friends spend on the Western Front. 
most of the story, most of the action, most of the dialogue actually takes place behind the lines when they're resting and recuperating because that's how war works. The, the human body cannot endure constant warfare. You can fight for a couple of hours. You can stand watch for a couple of days, a couple of weeks if you need to. But then after that, you need time to rest. You need time to recuperate. You need time to eat. You need time to sleep. You need time to process. You need time to write letters to your sweetheart. You need time to hope for the future. And so it is with the church. The church cannot endure constant conflict. There is a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Woe unto the Christian leader who doesn't understand that. Woe to the church saddled with a leader who doesn't understand that. There is a time for the warrior's axe, and there is a time for the servant's towel. And leadership means knowing what time it is. And it wasn't the right time for who Paul was at that moment. And so he went for further training. And other leaders for about a decade took center stage. He was out of sight, but of course he was not out of mind. And at the right time, as a much better man, he re-emerged to serve the Lord faithfully in a critical season. Thanks be to God. Now we're to the point where we ask the question, why does this matter? This is a wonderful story. I'm sure you enjoyed piecing all those puzzle pieces together. What does it matter? The greatest impression this story makes on me every time I think it through, and I've had to piece these puzzle pieces together a few times for Into the Word episodes and other things, but every time I piece it together, the impression it leaves on me is the fact that clearly God is not in our kind of hurry. I get the same impression every year uh, when I go through the Moses story in Exodus, which we did a couple weeks ago. Every time you get to Exodus 3, don't you realize that God is not in our kind of hurry? By the way, that's where that heading comes from. It comes from A.B. Baker uh, in his commentary on Exodus 3. He said that, God is not in our kind of hurry, just to give credit where it is due. There's actually a, a, a fair number of interesting similarities between the story of Moses and the story of the Apostle Paul, aren't there? In terms of how they were prepared as people. Uh, both of them have an incredible redemption story. Wouldn't you love to have either the testimony of Paul or Moses? Right? That's a pre it's pretty good. I mean, Moses was saved out of genocide because he floated down a river in a basket. That's better than your testimony, I guarantee you. And then the Apostle Paul was like struck by lightning on his way to kill Christians. That's good too. So they both had incredible redemption stories. And then they were both incredibly well-educated. Uh, as Stephen reminded us in his uh, sermon that got him killed in Acts chapter 7, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court and raised and educated in all the wisdom of Egypt. Incredibly well-educated. Paul, Hebrew, Harvard. They both had courage. Remember, maybe Moses at the start of his life had too much courage. His, his first job as a leader was to murder an Egyptian. Do you remember that? Who was messing with some of the, some of the Hebrews. And as a result, he actually got sent into exile for 40 years. For 40 years, he was tending sheep in the desert of Midian. And every time I read that, I think, wow, that is a long, slow preparation process. Same with the Apostle Paul. Ten years, this incredibly gifted individual was exiled to utter obscurity. Ten years, the greatest mind ever in Christendom was actually making leather tents, studying Greek philosophy. 
and offending his local synagogue leaders on a weekly basis. That's an interesting preparation. But you see this all over the Bible, if you're a careful reader. David, you remember David was anointed king as a teenager. He was 40 before he actually realized that, that full vision, remember? And he spent 13 years hiding in the caves of Judea, writing poetry, writing psalms. Joseph, we think of Joseph, another great leader in the history of the covenant community. Joseph spent 13 years languishing as a slave and in prison in Egypt. Clearly, God is not in our kind of hurry. When we see a talented young person, we want to put them on the platform now. If you even try to use the phrase, we used to say, uh, it used to be very common for us to say, you know, the young people, the children are the church of tomorrow. If you try to say that today in the church, somebody in the back will shout you down and say, the children are the church of today. Sit down, boomer, right? There's no patience. If you see a young leader today, you, you want, give them a microphone now. Hand them the keys to the mega church now. Give them a book deal now. What, what could possibly go wrong? Well, as we've learned over the last 30 years in evangelicalism, an awful lot can go wrong. Turns out slow and steady is still the right way to build kingdom leaders. And that's been a hard lesson for us to learn. Influenced by our culture, we have become a microwave church. We want everything hot and ready, right? But as we're seeing in the story, God is a crockpot God. He's slow. Does that still make sense that people still use crockpots? When I was a kid... By the way, you know you're going to get a boring story when it starts with, when I was a kid. But here it is. When I was a kid, uh, on Sunday morning, mom would put all kinds of stuff in this magic thing called a crock pot. And uh, you'd, she'd throw onions and uh, meat and carrots in there and some bouillon or whatever that is. And, uh, and then you come home afterwards, and I don't know what happens, some kind of witchcraft. You open it up, and you use like a lasagna and garlic bread. I don't know. It was incredible. It's just a pot. You put stuff in, and things come out. It was glorious. Why are we telling that story? Because God is slow. That's the point, right? God, he throws us into the soup and he leaves us to stew for a long time. God is slow, but that is because he makes things that last. The second thing I think the story is reminding us is that no leader is indispensable to the mission. The book of Acts will make that point multiple times. This is the first time we're seeing it, but it's not the last time. Just, again, flip forward. I don't want to spoil all the sermons coming up, but just flip forward to Acts 12. Look at the first two verses there. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James, the brother of John. Remember the sons of Zebedee. They were among the first disciples. They were part of the inner circle. Remember that? If you're a Bible reader, you know there were 12 disciples, but there were really three in the inner circle. There's Peter, James, and John. They were the only three. They were the lieutenants. They were the only three who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the only ones who got invited into that inner room where Jesus did that, his most amazing miracle, raising that little girl from the dead. They were the only ones who got to see that. James was a top-tier Christian leader. And yet, for whatever reason... He dies in the third episode of the second season, right? How does that make any sense? And yet it happens again in Acts 15. We're told that Paul and Barnabas decide to take two separate routes for the next church planting journey. Paul and Silas are going to go one way. Barnabas and John Mark are going to go the other way. And we never hear from Barnabas again. 
Isn't that amazing? Barnabas is the best character in the first half of the book, right? It's his incredible act of generosity in Acts 4 that empowers the outreach of the church in Acts 6. He's the guy who you know, goes and gets the Apostle Paul. He's the delegate that they send out in Acts 11. He's the best character in the first half of the story. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. According to church history, he was martyred in Cyprus, stoned by the Jews outside the synagogue in Salamis. There's a message in all that for us, I think. And the message is that no leader is indispensable to the mission. This is about Jesus. Jesus is the only indispensable one. The rest of us come and go. The rest of us do our peace, use our talents, spend our energy, bleed our blood if required, exit the stage, die, and are forgotten, and the church of Jesus Christ marches on. Because this is his story, not our story, thanks be to God. Then one last thing. I think the story of Paul's hidden years in Tarsus are intended to remind all of us of the necessity of quiet, solitude, and obscurity. Paul's preparation for ministry involved two seasons in the wilderness, one in the actual desert of Arabia and then one in the metaphorical desert of Tarsus. Paul needed that time. Paul was made in that time. And so it is with all leaders. Real leadership is forged in quiet. You can't become in the spotlight. You can't hear in the rush of day-to-day duties. All of that has to be sourced from somewhere else, and that somewhere else is the place of quiet, the place of solitude, the place of obscurity. Paul needed those years. He needed that deep well to sustain him through all the challenges and difficulties he would face in the years ahead. James Hauser has been on the the board of elders for most of the time that I've been here as a pastor. And uh, several years ago, he took it upon himself to make sure that I started taking all of my allotted holiday weeks. The first year that he was successful in so doing was 2019. Uh, There were a few weeks there where uh, I had holiday weeks, but we weren't going anywhere as a family, and he pressured me, uh, bullied me, some would say, uh, to take those weeks off, and so I did. And again, the kids were in school, we weren't going anywhere, so I just lingered every morning over the Word. I went for lots of walks. I had extended times of prayer, and it was really, really good. And it turned out to be really, really timely as well, because hard on the heels of that season of refreshment came COVID-19 and the three most exhausting years of ministry in living memory. I've learned to value quiet and rest. I mentioned that I just took two weeks off. My old self would only have taken one week off, because we only had one week of stuff planned with the kids. But I took the week before that as well. And again, the kids were in school, weren't going anywhere, but I lingered every morning over the Word. I went for lots of long walks. I exercised a lot, prayed a lot, and it was remarkably restorative. It doesn't just have to be extended seasons. I, uh, you know, the devil always tries to ruin your 
holidays. I'm sure that's true for everybody. It's certainly true for me as a pastor. Every time I'm about to go on holidays, I get a letter that disturbs my soul. Uh, and uh, I, got a, I got a letter just before we went on holidays, or just before we went away with the kids. And uh, it was a distressing letter. And it wasn't from anybody here, so don't, don't worry. It was like, oh, I told you not to send that letter, Fred. It, wasn't, it was a letter from somebody in the wider church. And it was just, it was stressful. You know, I didn't, I didn't to be honest with you, I didn't know how to respond. I, I, I felt very confident that I was right. And I felt like what this person was asking of me was wrong. But there's a lot of different ways to handle that, you know? The, the Bible actually says it's the glory of a king to overlook an offense. Meaning sometimes the smartest thing you can do as, an, as a leader is actually just delete the email. You don't have to respond to everything. But in this case, I thought, no, I think I, I, think I need to. But do I rebuke this person? Do I argue my case? Or do I, ah. I, I honestly had no idea what to do. and It was, it was stressing me out. But really, all I ended up needing is an extended period of time to pray about it. And in that quiet, there was nobody around, in that quiet, in that moment, in that window of wilderness, the Lord spoke. And I'm not trying to sound goofy or, or, or you know, I'm just saying, literally, I went to the Lord. I said, this is what happened. I don't know what to do. And I felt the Lord saying, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you say this? And you don't, you're not under no obligation to say that. Why don't you handle it this? And then why don't you leave it there? I was like, Thank you, Lord. And I got up in complete peace. Here's, here's my point. I don't care whether you're a parent, pastor, or just somebody trying to reach out to friends in your school or your neighborhood. There need to be, if you're a kingdom leader of any type, there need to be rhythms in your life of wilderness and work. That's what I'm saying. Because all of your leadership flows out from the wilderness. You have nothing else to offer but what you can only find in the wilderness. So wilderness and work. Because quiet matters. Solitude matters. Time alone with Jesus matters. We need that. We need that every day. You have to fight for those hours of quiet because that is where strength is found. That is where character is forged. That is where wells are dug that will sustain you through all the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little picture that we have scraped together from various references from the frame that we see in Acts and from the little bits that we find in Paul's letters. Lord, it is helpful for us to be reminded that we are where you want us to be. Lord, there are people in this room, no doubt, today who feel that they have been sidelined, who are asking the question, when will my time come? When will I get an opportunity? When will I get to shine? Lord, I pray right now that you'd give them patience, that you'd give them grace, that in their season of obscurity, they would make the best tents in Tarsus, that they would be the best shepherd in Midian, that they would write the best poetry in the cave of Adullam, and that they would trust that when it is the right time, when it is your time, they shall come forth as gold. Lord, you do all things well. You are the potter, 
We are the clay, and we rest in your sovereign hands. Amen.